You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. Uh, today, we have a very special podcast episode for you. Uh, we handed the reins over to Alexis Johnson, who uh, is a friend friend of the podcast, been on here before. And uh, she hosted a podcast with Melissa Drake and Sarah Heath, and uh, all three United Methodist pastors. And um, they had a conversation about what it's like to be uh, a, a female clergy, uh, what it, the experiences that they have had uh, negatively uh, towards their gender, uh, towards their um, the way they look, uh, the way they dress, and and all of the the facets of of ministry um, that they're in. Um, and and so we handed it over to them, and and this is a. Uh, a very good, a very hard in some places conversation, but a very real conversation that we wanted to have. And uh, Matt and I felt we didn't need to be a part of it um, because it, our voice is not needed here. And so uh, we handed it over and I hope you enjoy the Unbearded Theologians podcast today. You're listening to the No Beard Theologians podcast hosted by Alexis Johnson. This week on the No Beard cast, Matt and Zach have surrendered their studio to me and to two of my esteemed colleagues to talk about what it means to be a female clergy person. So I'm going to start by asking uh, my friends that have gathered here to introduce themselves to you, the listeners. Sarah, if you please. Sure. I am Sarah Heath, and I am a pastor in Costa Mesa, California, um, and a writer and a speaker. And uh, one of the things you asked us before we started recording was, how do we identify? So I am a cisgender, heterosexual, white, middle-class immigrant, which I always think is a weird twist for a lot of people upon meeting me. I was hoping that we were going to be called the bearded ladies, but I think I'll go with the no beard. That was my hope. I couldn't think of what to say. If we wanted to claim beardedness or unbeardedness. And, I mean, uh, I think it's great. <laughs> we just went with it. Okay, Miss Melissa, who are you? Hi, I'm Melissa Drake. I am on conference staff in the Iowa Annual Conference. I'm an ordained elder, and I identify as uh, white, cisgender, heteronormative, and um, middle class, um, but I wouldn't claim immigrant, Sarah, because we have been here for a long time. <laughs> Like I said, I'm Alexis Johnson. I am the lead pastor at Council Bluffs Broadway here, also here in Iowa. And I too, for those not watching, am cisgender and married to a guy. So I guess that makes me hetero and, uh, you know, uh, practicing. Um, And what were the other things? White, middle class. Um, And I thought it was important that we identify that because we're in the midst of this thing, especially in our denomination where we have clergy colleagues whose call is under threat because they don't share some of those identities, right? So for you listeners, as you're hearing this conversation, please know that the three of us are coming from a very specific spot um, in, in our identity and the things that we've struggled with and gone through as, as female clergy, but we also recognize that um, parts of our identity give us privilege that some of our other clergy members don't share. So we want to encourage you to be inspired by this podcast and to go out and to hear their stories and to learn about what they go through because it doesn't stop with just being female. There's also persons of color. Um, We have non-binary people who are, you know, called by God trying to serve in ministry. And we have folks who are lesbian, gay, and bisexual in their orientation who are called by God and they face a different level 
of, of persecution or a different level of commentary on their ministry than we face. So anyways, that's all. I just wanted to lift up who we are um, as we gather here today to talk. One of the reasons that Matt and Zach asked us to do this is because hopefully uh, you've all seen the video of going around on BuzzFeed of United Methodist ministers reading comments that have been said to their female clergy. And so Matt and Zach wanted to give us space to tell our own stories. So I want to start by asking, and I don't, I don't care who goes first, what was your first experience with a female pastor that's not you? And what, how did you feel about all of it? You want to answer that, Melissa? Well, we, I personally didn't have a female pastor while I was growing up. And so I think my first experience of female pastors was um, annual conference, uh, going to annual conference as a, a lay delegate, as a child, as a, as an adult, a young adult, I mean, and um, really interacting with the female pastors there um, was the first time. And for us, it wasn't so much that we didn't know that there weren't pastors who happened to also be women. It, we just had never been appointed a pastor that had been a female. So I grew up um, in Canada, which is one of my three citizenships. And uh, where I grew up, I grew up in a really um, small town about an hour and a half out of Toronto. My, both of my parents are city people, but we lived in the country. Um, and so uh, our church was actually pastored by a female pastor. And growing up in a different culture, uh, sort of the gender stereotypes are very different. And so moving from Canada to Mississippi when I was in high school, meant that I didn't encounter that it would even be an issue that a woman was a pastor. It made no sense to me because my pastor was a woman and no one ever said anything about it. It just, that's who she was. And coming from a small town, she was kind of the pastor or like the whole parish was actually the whole town. And so it was very strange uh, to experience like, that's not what women do. Um, Cause I had only experienced uh yeah, I, I had had one other pastor who was a guy, and I just didn't even think about the difference between the two because it was just not ever brought up. Mm -hmm. The church I grew up in um, still hasn't had a female pastor. Uh, they've had a, a person, a couple people of color serving there, but that's, you know, as far as the, they've deviated from the, quote, deviated from the norm. But um, so my first encounter with a female pastor was in high school. And I, I hate to say this, but she was an awful preacher. Um, and I, and so I had like this internalized sexism where I was kind of wrestling with my own call. And then I saw her preach and I was like, oh no, if this is the way females have to preach, I don't want to do it. I say no. Um, because you know, your first person that you meet in any sort what, of thing kind of becomes what made her a bad preacher. Do you know that? Oh, do you know or that? Not, kinder... not the greatest preacher for you. Okay. It's the tone of voice. Do you know the tone of voice that some women adopt when they're talking to like a room of kindergartners? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that mothering, I can't even do it. I've tried to do it in years since then, but like that, let me just tell you about Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. She did her whole sermon in that way. And like, I can't, I feel like you're talking down to me. So hmm. it was interesting. I, do you know how old, how old was she when she was your pastor? Do you have any idea? Oh, she wasn't the pastor of the church. I just heard she her. Was, she was preaching at like a baccalaureate service. Gotcha. Um, probably mid forties. Yeah. So I wonder if that was the narrative that she was told that like women are to, when teaching sound like the teacher that they had in second grade or yeah. um, what was the feedback they had got. So the North Carolina conference that uh, was the original BuzzFeed video 
the feedback on tone of voice is it, that's a real deal, right? And so I wonder if her tone was ever, uh, you know, told, you know, uh, that her voice sounded too strong or, um, and so I, yeah. I always, when I talk about issues of um, gender, it's uh, one of the things I've noticed is that often we are told not to be too much, nor are we told to be too little. And so you're either smiling too much or you're not smiling enough or you're sounding too authoritative or not authoritative enough. And so right. I wonder what feedback led to her thinking she had to have a God voice. Well, or even, even just like you said, that narrative of this is how women sound when mm -hmm. they maybe that was her only experience because she probably would have been one of the early people ordained, you know, and, yeah. and called to that area of Iowa. So anyways, that was my first experience with a female pastor. It was really interesting to think, oh no, <laughs> I don't want to, surely we can do something. So she's a very nice person. Um, what was the first time you realized, so Sarah, you mentioned that it was moving to America when you realized your gender might be a problem. Did you know you were called to ministry by that <laughs> point or? No. No. <laughs> I'm not even sure today. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I, if you had asked me if I, you know, my favorite reaction is my aunt who, when I told her I was going to be a minister, she's like, you can't be a reverend. You're a reverend. Um, and <laughs> that's probably true. Like I just, that was never, I don't yet know. That was not a thing I ever thought I was going to be, especially at that age. Um, I think, gosh, I, I think that I, I realized that it was going to be unique. Um, I didn't really hear the call of the ministry until I was in college and not until like my end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year. Um, and so I struggled with calling so much that, um, and I was really confused denominationally too. I was, I've always had a heart for just sort of like, um, I think growing up in my mom's British, my dad's Canadian and growing up in sort of different social settings, I, I've never felt like I fit in anywhere. So I tend to fit in everywhere. And so I was part of the Baptist student union and the Methodist group because we did not have Methodism growing up in Canada. And so um, it was just a different, um, I loved the Wesley foundation and I love the Baptist student union. But when I did feel my call into ministry and that's a long and fun story, I, when I shared that with the male leaders of the Baptist student union, they were like, like did not know what, 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 uh, what to do. And it was this um, odd experience of I had, they just shut down. And instead of talking to me about it, literally, I just stopped being on leadership and nobody really said anything about it. And it was just a really strange experience. And when I told the leader of the Wesley Foundation, who also happened to be a woman, her response is like, oh, thank God, we've all known for a long time. And <laughs> we just wanted you to get to it. Um, because I had, you know, I would studied art and acting and um, I have a degree in biology that I use occasionally. Um, and so I had uh, just not really had a, a sense that this was what I was supposed to do. So I hadn't even wrestled with whether that was okay or not. Um, and so I think that that for me was just sort of my first uh, pushback was definitely folks from my Baptist Student Union telling me uh, no. Although one girl did helpfully tell me that maybe my call was um, that I was supposed to be married to a pastor, which I thought that was a helpful, you know, suggestion. <laughs> okay, Melissa, how about you? When's the first time your gender came into play? Well, Sarah, it's funny you mentioned like junior or senior year of college. So I remember in my senior seminar, I went to a small liberal arts Calvinist college. Oh. 
You were so, uh, preordained to go there. That's awesome. Yes, I was. I was, you know, really destined to be part of the elect to be there. So um, for our senior seminar, we did a lot of uh, social ju justice studies, and we had to write a lot of these papers. And one of them was on this Christianity teach male headship. And um, as I started writing this paper, I, I mean, this was a real the real conversation we were having. And as I started writing the paper, I, I came from a Wesleyan background. I come from the United Methodist Church. And I really started articulating my own, you know, Wesleyan heritage and also my identity as a female and articulated for the first time, perhaps I had a call to ministry there. And I got my paper back and he gave me an A, our professor is male. He gave me an A and then all over the paper was scribbled in red. I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. Clearly you're wrong. And at the bottom of the paper, I remember this so distinctly. He said, all of this is wrong. I can't refute your arguments because they're tight, but you're just wrong. And um, good luck to you. Oh my gosh. And I thought, wow. You know, and I, in that articulation of my first exploration of maybe being called to ministry as a female, you know, being told by these uh, academic professors that probably I wasn't called by God in that way because Christianity does teach male headship from that perspective. Um, I, I was just irate. And so then I applied to seminary um, that day. <laughs> I like that. I wasn't intending on being a pastor, but I applied to seminary just to prove to them that this was a legit career choice. So my, um, the first time I bumped into gender and, and how people understood my call actually came from uh, my family, my uncle, my great uncle on my mom's side ran an independent Baptist church. Um, and I don't know if y'all have any experience with independent Baptists, but they're, uh, they make Southern Baptists look like liberals. I know some um, codependent Baptists, but I've never met any <laughs> independent Baptists. <laughs> so I told, I knew that they didn't let women preach and teach. And so I had like called my uncle and told him, Hey, I've got this call to ministry and I hope, you know, hope you'll be understanding. And he sent back this letter that was like, uh, it's a violation of the Bible. It's, um, you know, maybe you're called to be a missionary. You could go over to Africa and talk to them about the gospel. And I was like, okay, so women can have authority in Africa, but not in America. That's first of all, real weird. Um, and then he said the same thing, uh, that you heard Sarah, he's like, or you can go to seminary and you can find a husband, um, and be a really educated pastor's wife. And I was like, that's a really expensive, <laughs> you know, marriage certificate right there too. Um, so that was the first time it really, I realized that, oh, there's going to be, there's, there really is going to be people. And, you know, of course there's all the other experiences I'm sure you guys have had where people have walked out of churches because they realized, Oh, you haven't had that? Oh, no. Mm -mm. I, I mean, I've had people leave later and say they're probably not coming back because they appreciated my preaching, but they just couldn't abide by the fact that I was a woman huh. without a beard or a penis because that matters. But um, I, they never left during the service. Oh, these people didn't leave during the service. They came in and were like saying hi. And I said, hi, welcome to the church. I'm Reverend Alexis. And then you turned and left and walked back out the door. Yeah, see, so um, we're, I'm in California. So we're just excited when people walk in the door. Like there's, you know, it's such a different culture. Um, and so I think, and a lot of people that come to my church, particularly in the setting I'm in right now, are um, from the nun and done category. So they're not coming to church unaware of who the pastor is. Oftentimes they're coming to church because of who the pastor is. Um, a lot of them are deconstructed uh, former evangelicals or um, like right next door to us is the Saddleback plant and they have a great 
dude pastor. He's awesome, Randy. So if, if that's what people want, they would have walked through the other door. Um, and so I think like, uh, it's interesting because I, at this point, because I am the lead pastor at this church, um, it's never a surprise to anyone when they walk through the door who the pastors are very rarely. Um, sometimes we have people who uh, visit because we have, we're in a historical building and they may have a relative that they knew went to the church. And I've never, in this setting, um, I've had people surprise and say some of the funny things, but I've never had anyone um, declare that as the reason they're not. But again, we're in a culture where church isn't expected and people can kind of find whatever brand of faith that they're looking for. You know, there's lots of, uh, lots of dude pastors literally on the same street as me. Melissa, I can't believe you've never had somebody turn around and, because you were in small town Iowa for a while, right? Yeah, but I think that that's pretty similar to Sarah's experience because we were the only show in town. If people came to that church, they they could see that my name on the marquee was clearly feminine. So Melissa's, I have not met a man named Melissa. And also when they, I mean, it was a town of 200 people. So the word was around, like everybody kind of knew that this is who I was. And so people were making a destination. They they knew who I was. So the, the only time I can remember, we had a guest who had moved to a town that was nearby and he was visiting churches and he came and he stayed. Um, and I wrote him a note saying, thank you so much. I'd love to be your pastor. Um, you know, let's have an opportunity to chat. And he wrote a note back that said, I, I, I can't come. Your preaching was fine, but I can't come because you're a girl. You're a girl. I mean, yeah. I have had people say that to me. You're a girl. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, I think that, you know, there have been times when people are surprised by, uh, I speak a lot at events. And so I think people get surprised sometimes that I'm the keynote. Um, but that has more to do with like, not anymore, but it used to be because I look so young. Yeah, I'm not young at all. But people often thought I was a lot younger. Um, I remember one woman said, oh, I thought that the, like, the cute little acolyte was preaching. <laughs> or it was Youth Sunday. And at that time, I, th- I was like solidly in my 30s. And I was like, mm, nope. <laughs> nope, just shorter. I mean, I'm not that short even really, but well, you're um, not that old, Sarah. I think. I mean, I'm not that young, but thank you. Thank you. I've definitely been in full-time ministry for 13 years, 14 years. So it's, this is not a new gig. Um, And so I think, you know, the idea of like, uh, I get concerned when our conference starts talking about me as young clergy. I'm like, "Mm, nope. Uh, But again, there's not that many folks going into it at this point in stage in our denomination. So it's right. I think we're all, I mean, Melissa, I think is the youngest one here, but I think we're all close to the same mid thirties. Oh, I'm in my late thirties. Oh, well, yeah, me too. I just turned 38. Like, yeah. I'm oldest. I'm the oldest. (laughs) (laughs) But, but what I do love is that we've all been in ministry for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I started when I was 24 in Mm full-time ministry and yeah, you all too. And so I think that that, that's a testimony too, to like first time career, you know, young, young women, um, coming into ministry that we, you know, I only have that one story about somebody not coming to church that I know of because I'm a female. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I've had people outside of the community been really mad about it. And, um, particularly when I first moved here and I was looking for community at 24. Um, and I think our system is really, really, really broken when it comes to helping, um, pastors know how to, um, be humans. And so, um, I was 24. I just moved to California. did not know anyone. So I went to a non-denominational church that was 
mostly people who are 24. The crazy thing is you walk in the door and people are still 24. No one, like they've just rotated in. It's so crazy. Um, like everyone who's older than that finds another community, but that church rocks if you're around 24. So, um, which is kind of, it's interesting with our culture here in Southern California. But uh, this, <laughs> I was at a party one night and um, non-denom church, great, love the people. We've actually, one of the founding pastors is a member of my church now, but this church is like huge and just super influential in this area. And so I was at a party one night and this guy was drunk and was like hitting on me and then realized um, someone said, oh, you know, Sarah's a pastor. And then he proceeded to tell me all the reasons why that wasn't okay. And I was like, look, drunker make drunkerson. Maybe this is not the time for you to talk about what you think is moral or immoral. And then I told him um, all the understandings of Greek and why that word you women be silent is actually speaking to a certain group of women. It went on and on. It was great. Um, um, and all these guys like gathered around. They're like, you got it. <laughs> I was like, what? why am I having this argument? And then I'm looking at my friends who are like school teachers and they're just sitting over there talking to other humans. And I'm like, can I just do that? Is that, can I do that instead of nope. sitting here defending my job? Nope. Can't ever do it. <laughs> yeah. So what about um, places in where you've had your body or your clothes <laughs> commented on in professional settings? Sure. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Mine's Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, well, I actually um, have processed this in sort of a bit of a public way because I realized about a year after this experience that it was um, massively traumatizing. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't always know how to label that. Uh, I had a superior in our system and I won't say what position they were because then it'll be pretty easy to figure out who they are. And this is probably a pretty chargeable offense, but um, this uh, person who was a superior uh, called me into their office. I had just started my new appointment, proceeded to tell me for about an hour um, how great they thought I was and had seen me on um, public settings from speaking at conferences to seeing videos of me speaking at events to like seeing me speak at a Western jurisdiction thing and just said like, you're the new voice and face of Methodism. We're so proud of you, all these things. And then said, but there is, um, there's a reason that I brought you here. And all of a sudden, you ever had that like butt moment where you're like, ooh, like when someone says something really nice to you, I think sometimes who I am, I have these moments where I'm like, there's going to be a butt. Um, and the butt came about an hour in and, and it was about my butt. No, I'm just kidding. But in uh, the, the middle of this thing, like all these things and how can we resource you and we're excited about this project you're doing, um, said, I, I am concerned um, about the way that you look because your body is dangerous and no man would trust you with their um, girlfriend or wife. And more people, what you say is so profound and you are an incredible speaker, but more people are paying attention to your hemline than what's coming out of your mouth. Hmm. Then proceeded to tell me the outfits that I had worn to a bunch of different events. Now, I need you to understand, like I dress business casual. I'm also in Southern California. So a spaghetti strap dress is not causing any human to stumble. I'm not walking around in a bathing suit. Um, it's business appropriate. It's appropriate to my age group. Um, and I can, all, I can say all of that now. What I said in that moment was nothing. Um, I was basically uh, you know, accused of being loose morally. Um, guys, I live like a nun. Like all these things that like, uh, it just didn't sound like me. And in that moment, I actually um, decided that I was leaving ministry um, because this just wasn't to be 
you know, I had given up so much for this job. You can't be a normal human in some ways. I, you know, I, I was so young when I started this job and I had been a sorority girl. I had been a normal human. I had not lived in the super religious sphere. And so to come into this and be um, told all these things was just so othering when I had lived a life that I had thought really was above reproach. And I, you know, I don't have a lot of money at the end, especially at that time. And so I was, you know, wearing what was, you know, some outfits that my mom had like, just this experience of like second guessing everything I had ever worn, particularly offending to this person was an outfit that I had worn that was a spaghetti strapped dress that was from Ann Taylor that my mom had bought me for, uh, you know, the year of my ordination. And it, all of this was really hard. And the person kept going and said, I have spoken to um, the pastor that I had been working with, and they have informed me that other people have commented on the way you look. And all of a sudden it was all my male colleagues had been talking about the way I look and no one had talked to me. And it, it was awful. And I went into the parking lot of uh, the office I had been called into and wept and wept. And I was trying to think of what else I could do. What else? I've got lots of other skills. I'd probably make more money. Like going through my head of like, you know, I, I can't change that this is my body. And basically she told me you're, you're attractive. And so you need to wear suits um, to, to give power. I live in Southern California. If I walked in a room in a suit, people would assume they were being sued. Like this is the weirdest, like, or I was playing the role of someone, like not actually being me. And so it was just, or they would feel so uncomfortable with this professional thing that I was trying to share. I mean, we're in a, a place where Christianity is, so strange to people that we're going to make it even stranger by having me show up and like, anyway, it was weird. And as I was in the parking lot weeping, I called a, a friend of mine who's a pastor and just said, Hey, why hasn't anyone told me? And his wife who happens to be a professor overheard the conversation and she got on the other, you know, she got on the phone with him and just said, um, he put me on speaker and she said, you have just been um, sexually harassed and you have an option to sue or like to have your body discussed as a dangerous item and be told like, well, and I was like, and that was a lot overwhelming as well. Um, and so I went over to a friend's house and I actually had to pick something up from the church for the church. Cause I just started a new church and I just done this project happened to meet the owner of the store. And here I am just kind of like going through the motions and my best friend happened to be in town. And so he was with me and he had heard I'd cried like for an hour about like, why can't I just be a human? Like, I do you think I'm slutty? Like all these words, all these things that like I had been insinuated. I was like, do you think I'm like, like I, I try to be so whatever, you know? And he's like, sir, you've got to stop trying to fit into these other people's category. Like, you know, and so I get to this place to pick up this order that I had and the owner happened to be the only one in the store cause he'd given everyone else the day off. And he sat me down and, um, I was new to this city and he said to me, Hey, I don't know why I don't normally do things like this. And I think spiritual people, like people who use their spirituality, is kind of weird, but um, God is telling me, he's like, I know this sounds weird. My wife would laugh at this. He's like, God is telling me to tell you that who you are is really important and you shouldn't be anyone other than who you are. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like walked out and just like looked at my best friend and he was like, well, I guess that was clear. And this person who had, like just made me feel awful, dirtier than dirt, like just awful. You know, to think that somebody has been looking at every outfit you've ever worn in a public sphere. And I happen to speak at events. So like, I'm, it's not hard to find me. 
it felt, oh, I was so ashamed. And this person then started reaching out to me and text message, hey, just want to let you know, like, I'm proud of you and what you're, and I was like, you don't, and then I began to realize this person thought they were helping me, but what they didn't realize is that they were damaging me. And I think so many people had commented on my looks, whether, and oftentimes when I was younger, it was really positive and cutesy and trying to relate to a woman. And I, and I'm, I got that I was in the South and I kind of, okay. Um, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me angry, but, um, to have someone describe my body as dangerous was probably the most damaging, especially part of the story too, as I processed it on a podcast that I did with a therapist, um, was that I had had an eating disorder when I was younger. So I was all too ready to hear that my body was bad. Um, and so to hear this from someone who was supposedly high up in this structure, it was like, oh, of course, I'm ready to hear I'm dangerous. So that was my, that was probably the worst one. <laughs> I love me pretty bad. I mean, that it, I've heard you process it before because I was listening. I followed your podcast, so I heard that all come out, but yeah. Hearing you tell the story again is just appalling. It's appalling. It is. Okay, Melissa. When have you had your body was, commented on? I, I generally don't have my form commented on or my outfits for the most part. I mean, really people just see me and they just see me and it's, that's fine. Um, I made a, I really remember making a conscientious effort to not hide who I was. So I'm like five, eight and I'm voluptuous and my weight fluctuates, but I always um, have female form. And I just decided early on in my ministry that I wasn't going to pretend like I didn't because I didn't want to dress differently than who I was. Right. Um, and you know, I really, I didn't get in trouble for that except for one time early on in my candidacy when, um, a committee discussing my qualifications for ministry. And I was so anxious about if they would think that my work was strong enough or my evangelism was good enough or that my theology was acceptable to who they uh, were hoping that I would become in ministry. And it turned out they, they kept me waiting for an hour and a half um, because they were discussing the uh, amount of cleavage that I was showing during the interview. And it wasn't inappropriate. <laughs> It, I mean, it just wasn't, and it came down to, um, because my, my shirt wasn't, um, you know, right at my collarbone there and they, an hour and a half, they got trapped in that conversation. And thankfully it was actually, you know, a, a superintendent that stopped it and said, this is inappropriate, but, um, that's, you know, that's really the only time I and mean, people, people notice, but they, they tend to be, I think, overwhelmed by the force of my personality. <laughs> And so maybe they don't get a word in edgewise or they don't get a chance. <laughs> so for me, it was my first church was, um, they got really into that professional look and like, we're going to send you to a colorist and we're going to, you know, help you pick out a pantsuit, which was gross. And I actually have an official staff picture from back then where I look like, you know, dress up dress up formal Barbie um, and my perfectly brown pantsuit that's matched to my coloring with my peach lipstick and my, you know, perfectly coiffed hair. And it was super gross. Um, but the, but the, the part where it got the worst was um, someone sent a note to the SPRC chair, an email and the SPRC chair cut off all the identifying pieces and it handed me the note. Um, and it was, you know, we can't, we can't come to church when Alexis is preaching anymore because she dresses like a hooker walking down the street. And I was in like, like 
clothes, I mean, again, appropriate for my age, appropriate for my body type. I had on a, the Sunday they were upset about, I had on like a wrap dress and I had put a shirt underneath it to make sure I didn't have cleavage showing and a jean jacket over it. And apparently that's how they think streetwalkers dress. Um, you know, I was, I was like, I don't Maybe know what. Meant like, like the walking dead. Maybe that meant that kind of a streetwalker. I have no idea. But the SPRC chair thought it was okay to pass this on. And Which is, that's the, oh, that you weren't protected in that moment. That's where my face, those who are just listening and not watching, I got, I got my angry face. Well, because you I'm shouldn't hurting. do this to people. P.S. Note for all clergy people, anonymous complaints are stupid and you shouldn't, that's no. like, you know, we just don't, you know, respond to those. And so that was probably the worst one was. Well, we live in an age, right? Where it's so easy to be anonymous and just say whatever we want. This, uh, I happen to um, be invited to be on BuzzFeed for something called Ask a Pastor, which was a live Ask a Pastor event. And it was myself and they had um, uh, purposely chosen someone who is from a different demographic. So African-American prosperity gospel um, pastor who was, we, we couldn't have been more different. And I just, he was, he's Chris Brown's like personal pastor and he works for um, Bishop Jake's ministry. And he's just, but he's like, <laughs> we couldn't have been more different and couldn't have enjoyed each other more. Like, but it was this awkward, like, um, you know, thing where not only are you seeing the questions coming live, but like within the first, I think it was an hour, a hundred thousand people had watched it um, and comments. <laughs> you know, down. And of course there was the typical women shouldn't be pastors. How can they call this person a pastor? And, um, you know, they, someone actually wrote, like, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't read the comments because that was something that my friends had told me. Cause I read like three and they were like, stop, you don't, you, you don't need to, but like, um, the guy I was seeing at the time, it was, he was the only person I've ever uh, dated that didn't come from a faith tradition. And he, he's awesome. Um, we didn't work out, but he's great. Uh, and he like, he goes, I was reading that stuff and it, like, it's crazy to me. Like people were asking like, what are her credentials? He's like, Sarah, you have way more, um, like all these people were commenting about how many degrees you have. And he was like, why did they have to like, he's like, that's so dumb. Like, why do they care? And then he's like, and a bunch of people were like, I thought it was going to be like prostitutes, like that now go into ministry and, or like, maybe she's a porn star or like all this kind of stuff based on the way she looks. And he's like, I take that as a compliment, Sarah. <laughs> like you don't look like what they think a pastor would look like, but what does a pastor look like? Well, yeah, <laughs> there's so much of that, like ridiculousness where you have to realize, like, usually the person who is saying the awful thing, it's coming from some pain in themselves. Like, right. So uh, I can't come hear this person speak because they look like a streetwalker. Like, what, first of all, like, what is your whole, I'd like to hear a prostitute preach. Actually, I think that's in the Bible. You're welcome. Um, I think there's just this, like, whole sense of, like, who has authority and who doesn't have authority. And the fear that people have of, like, someone having authority that isn't who they think should. But the idea of the kingdom of God is so up or down that, like, the idea that, authority is this thing. I get worried when authority is assumed, you know, I don't like this whole idea of you look like a streetwalker. You can't be a pastor. Well, and I wonder about, I wonder about our ages because we did all start young mm -hmm. and if our ages haven't, you know, has had an impact and um, I'm on the later half of 30 as well. And so it's, but I'm still telling people like, Nicole, you're so young. And I'm like, at what point do I get to not be young anymore? I mean, I almost want you to stop yes. calling me young. I have two.
Exactly. It's usually like, I'm not married and don't have kids. So that's another like, throws people for a loop. Um, usually after you have kids, there's at least a little bit of a, oh, you have permission to be in this space. <laughs> well, I have very young children and I haven't been married that long. I started off uh, ministry as a single person. And yes, that was a totally, um, the young female and single combo is like the, you know, the deathly, you cannot be this and have any sort of authority. It's interesting. I think it's a strange gifting to you though, because it disarms people. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are people who are, maybe what that woman was trying to do, the first woman you ever heard was she was trying to disarm people. Um, not successfully for you apparently, but um, I wonder how many times people, uh, when they do use a false voice or a false personality, and I would argue actually like a lot of clergy, not male nor female. I mean, I think it's across the oh, board. Yeah. We feel this pressure to be something other than ourselves. Um, I think oftentimes it's because people want to relate and disarm um, or are afraid that their authority won't be heard. One woman who I met uh, early on in my ministry had she's gone through a process of losing and gaining weight and said that the reason that she realized that at one point is that she was trying to um, have her body not be noticed. So she had gained weight um, unbeknownst to herself, even that she was doing it as a protection such that her body wouldn't be seen. And uh, you know, Melissa, it's funny that you should mention your uh, board of ordaining ministry. I discovered years later, years later, we're talking like mm, 12 years after I've been ordained, uh, or maybe not, maybe 10 years after, uh, that they had unanimously voted uh, to pass me through. And I was going through a very traumatic time when I went through ordination um, outside of the church. In my personal life, I had just almost got married. It was this really traumatic time. And um, here I am, I just did my ordination papers and I kind of had this like feeling of like, we're speed dating. This is what, um, this is what I'm gonna treat ordination like. Like I'm trying to figure out if I wanna do this as much as you're trying to figure out if you want me. Because I, so many of my colleagues were feeling this sense of like, I have to do this. And I was not in that place. I was so ready for God to say, nope. And I could be like, sweet, I'm out. Um, and so I went in with a different attitude. And what was crazy is I went through the process fairly quickly, which was not the case here for a long time. Um, and so they voted, I was the first vote unanimous uh, to pass all my sections. And then someone stood up and said, but what are we gonna do about the way she looks? And then they started talking about it. And the person who told me about it, told me about it years later. Now that I think about it, it might've been even closer to, it might've been like five years. Cause I, I didn't get ordained for a long time cause I was dragging my toes. Um, but he said, I had to stop them. And I'm telling you about this cause I want to apologize that that even happened. Hmm. He's like, I should have stopped it a lot earlier. But he said, we've all agreed that she's great. Why are we talking about the way she looks? We didn't talk about the way that any of the guys look. We didn't talk about, you know, the only other person that I have heard that kind of thing happen to, one of my uh, clergy colleagues is, uh, she's, she's a voluptuous woman and they kept talking about her weight, mm. um, which is odd. Um, understandably, she uh, felt attacked and they were like, no, no, we're worried about your health, which there are, right? There's some issues around that. Um, but it was just an interesting thing to say, oh, um, you, you all saw the giftings for ministry. Same with Melissa. They, that was not their concern. Um, their concern was how I would be received based on the way I look, which is hysterical because sometimes I think the way I look is what 
um, the disarming nature of being like a normal young human in Southern California is actually what draws people. Yeah. You know, there's oh. so much fakeness mm-hmm. they don't need anymore, right? Yep. Well, when we're talking about the nuns and duns, which is who the church is trying to reach anyways, it does. It, does, it ends up being a good thing. And there was some stuff that came out where there had been some some misconduct on behalf of one of my predecessors there. And it ended up being um, accidentally helpful, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I was female. Because it automatically takes that, um, the church had had a history of sexual misconduct and it was all from men. Um, And so to be a woman in that position, people were like, we didn't have any, like, it didn't have to do any extra work to establish safety for myself. I was automatically safe because I was young and female and therefore totally non-threatening, right? So there are times when it works to our advantage and, um, you know, we don't look like pastors, we don't act like pastors, whatever that means, uh, works with the nuns and duns because clearly they don't want to be around people who look and act like pastors, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be done with the church. And so that's true. Yeah. I mean, I say, I would think we, I would say we, we do act and look like pastors. It's just, what is a pastor? And it's literally, that's the problem is the definition of that. And I think our denomination is really struggling to answer that question. And I I would argue not answering it well. Um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of, I I don't know if you guys get this a lot where you guys are. Again, we're in a a totally different cultural setting. But for me, uh, the number of times people ask, how can we get more clergy like you that are, uh, you know, entrepreneurial and thinking outside of the box? And I was like, well, first of all, I did all of this while being critiqued for doing all of this. And I just had a sense that this is how the divine um, is asking me to be and do. And I the number of times I have had to defend the fact that I do public theology like is kind of crazy. And then now you're asking me how you can get more people like me. The truth is people like me are entrepreneurial and they're going to go do it where it's easier to go do it. Like they're smarter than to go through this process um, where you are othered and dehumanized. And, um, you know, I think there is this beauty in, um, sort of having people have to go through a process of discerning, but it has gotten out of control. And we are asking people who are already inundated with um, overwork and that kind of stuff to now be the judging board of the people coming behind them. But the church that is now is not the church of three years ago, let alone the church of 15 years ago. Like everything is rapidly changing. Right. I just read a bunch of the board of ordinary ministries like questions and I'm like, these are not applicable. Like, I hate to tell you guys, this is not, you know, and I'm so sorry that you have to go through all this. And, you know, the candidates that I'm talking to are amazing and incredible. And I'm actually, you know, I'm saying, I, I want to be honest with you and tell you, I'm not sure that I would go through it now. Um, it was great. And it's been a wonderful experience for me, but I think just if, if it's not um, helpful in letting people live out this amazing call, then I don't know why we're doing it this way. And um I think it's an odd system. I have a friend who is a PhD in organizational psychology and was talking just about something about the fact that every year we get, we could be moved and his eyes just got huge. And he said, can you tell me more about your system? And I was telling him more and more. And he goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but this is the most toxic system I've ever heard of as a work environment. He's like, people are being damaged by, so you're telling me everyone knows your salary. Interesting. 
And you're also telling me that everyone votes every year, whether or not, but then there's like these other people that like their vote counts more. Cause they're like, huh, but they were like you a couple of years before. It's like, <laughs> Oh, hmm. and just kept asking me questions. And I got really defensive. I'm like, no, no, no it's like helpful. And then I was like, Oh, it is really toxic. And I'd never thought about it. Right? Like, it's like a weird abusive relationship where I was like, no, Ew. like a weird grandma that like everyone else is talks about your weird grandma. And you're like, you can't talk about my weird grandma, but I can talk about my weird grandma. That's how I feel about Methodism. Right? Like, no. And then I was like, Oh, maybe. Right. It's this really weird thing. And then throw in the mix our gender. I mean, one of the things that was most striking to me was um, hearing the, the people talk about the people who have been appointed to the positions. Um, so that video that, we, that we're kind of referencing, they've been appointed to these positions and then the church would respond as if they, I've already done my number of, you know, we've already had to have a woman. We've already had to, all these things that you're like, ugh. And then oh. as a woman to step into that. Yeah, or that one that was like, we knew the conference was mad at us. So the worst they could do was. Oh yeah, a lesbian oh gross it was so gross yeah yeah, yeah. So but we've awesome. built the system that does that that sends people to areas that they like don't we had actually had a bishop one time who used to appoint people for lessons so um they thought the congregation could learn by having um someone that was way outside of their ethnicity way outside of their affinity way outside of their age group so sent in us you know one example is i have a really great friend who's korean um single at the time when she was there sent into a church that was predominantly tongan in a tongan um center like center of area so tell me how that's going to teach yes i think that's beautiful if they're already open to that but it was so hard and her ministry and um she was amazing and did a great job with it but the years that she sat in what felt like isolation and tried to get to know the other is beautiful and great but when uh, appointments are tossed around as lessons oh that's problematic especially lessons i mean because in that case you're talking about sacrificing a clergy person to teach a congregation a lesson and it's in the day and age when people just go to a church they feel more affinity for right so our church, the church I was appointed to was also taught a lesson and a lot of people just left. Yeah, just because there's, there's another church down the street. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in this day and age, it's not just churches you could go to. It's podcasts you could listen to and preachers you can watch on the internet and I can get them. I don't even have to be up at the hour that they're on TV. I can get them to show up on my television set whenever I, or my computer screen whenever I want to. And to, Oh, gross. We're going here in Iowa. We're going to longer and longer appointments. And so it doesn't feel quite as year to year as it used to. I mean, I know the reality of we have that discussion every year, but um, we've been at my husband and I serve as pastors here at Council Bluffs Broadway. And he's the associate. I'm the lead pastor. First of all, love that um, because that's fun for everybody. And uh, he was also the piano player. So I'm the pastor that married the piano player. Um, Right. No, it was all up and up. I had permission. Um, and so, but the, uh, um, I mean, they talked to us about being here 10 years, 15 years, uh, at least for me as the lead pastor, we don't know what's going to happen with, you know, eventually we assume, I don't know many people who are called to be associate pastors for 10, 15 years, maybe. Um, but you know, so that's, I think it, well, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast. Well, right. 
what does it mean to be a lead versus associate and what is a call like right well but i mean the, one's a calling and one's a not and then yeah one is yeah. yeah yeah no so i my point is we don't have quite that from an organizational damage standpoint i don't feel quite the oh we could leave after a year no, and we don't, we're not, we currently, our bishop that we currently have is much more attuned to affinity and, um, you know, the, the realization of scarcity, like there are not that many positions um, with guaranteed appointment. It's a really weird um, situation where you got to place people. And sometimes I think too, the language of call is really brutal because I don't think we're called for life necessarily. We might be, but um I don't know. I, I have a really tough time thinking like, I, I know a lot of clergy who have been in the biz for a long time and it, it is a biz to them and they, they are so resentful and don't want to be doing it anymore, but we haven't given language or like helpful ways to not be that. Um, and so, well, yeah. And let's even just talk about how the church that you might've been called into to serve is not the church that we have today. Right. And the yeah. church that we have today is different and it requires a different skill set and requires a different look and requires people who, uh, like us, um, who tend, maybe we don't look like what a pastor used to look like and we don't go the places that pastors used to go and we don't act the way that pastors used to act because we're called for the church for this time. And mm. I think that that's, that's a different story that we don't tell or help people articulate to say, are you still called to the church of today? Or was that for just that season? Yeah. And that's, and that that's faithful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they, they have a lot of people it. clinging on to keep it the same because that's the thing that they believed in. And that right. they loved. And can love. I mean, I think there are, you know, there's, it's, I have a, <laughs> I have such a heart for intergenerationalism. I mean, the community I'm in is a hundred year old build, almost a hundred year old building with people who are every generation and like all these like golden millennials that everyone's hunting after like come in and it's crazy the the way that we do community together i mean it's so incredible but i think we've either been taught at the conferences that you throw all the old stuff out or we've been taught and, and then you try to look as much like a non-denom church as you can big screens all the sort of stuff and it's like is that who you are be authentic to who you are and i think understanding that like we have to sort of ask why we do everything that we do. You, you, have, you can't stop looking at each piece of what you do and how you do it. And am I called to this place and space? But with a system like ours, it's, it's hard. So what happens to the person who says, no, I'm not? What do we do with them? Where do they go? Have we given them skills to be inside another sort of um, place and space? It's well, the, I mean, yeah, the answer, the easy answer is no. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I don't know about, uh, the two of you, but from a perspective of leaving the ministry and going into something else, uh, the applications would probably come back. Yeah, you'd be great at this, but you're way overqualified. So we can't afford to hire you. Right. And that's where, I don't know if you've ever applied for a job and gotten that response. That's always an exciting one. Like, I know I'm overqualified for the job, but I understand what you're offering for salary and I'm saying yes. So can you just- Oh, our salaries class? compared to the local salaries are so low that it, they're like, oh, you worked for that. <laughs> so, I was thinking like Starbucks barista, probably, oh, you know, yeah. might be a pay cut, but- Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, yeah, I couldn't live where I live. I mean, just not my, my home is very small, but I couldn't live um, in the area that I live in and do that sort of a job. So that is, I mean, it's a reality and it's a reality for men and women. I think um, we're in a, 
you know, Phyllis Tickle says that every 500 years, a massive shift happens in church. So whether it's the Reformation or whatever, we're in the midst of that, I would say right now. I think the uh, church is trying to figure out, not just us guys, I'm in a group of, I am in a group of lead pastors where I am the only woman. You're welcome. Um, there's one other woman who is a pastor in uh, Costa Mesa. There's two other lead female pastors in Costa Mesa, but they just don't want to participate with these guys for them. That's a stretch. Um, so I'm the only female, I'm the only single person, and I am uh, just astounded to hear how similar, and these guys have like the churches that everyone's going to all the conferences to hear them talk. Like they, they're at the, they're at the shiny churches, um, the sexy pastor churches, um, and they're saying even that they're having a tough time as culture shifting. Um, and so we have to figure out like, what does that look like? Um, and how can you be you in it? Um, which is, I think, kind of a weird, exciting time. Like all the people that critiqued me so hard and have been so hard on me, um, in the last couple of years has been a really weird experience of like sort of restoration with some of those folks. Um, and God keeps bringing them back into my life and um, in really encouraging ways and to be like, yeah, I know you don't know that I know you used to talk really bad about me and that you're asking me this and it's kind of weird. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that, yeah, there's just so much to be asked like, where are, where is the church? What does church look like? And how do I fit into that? I think not just women are asking that guys are asking that a lot as well. Right. What does a pastor look like in this day and age? I mean, the interesting thing is in our um, state, almost all of the seminaries are closing or moving because there just are not people going in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Iowa has what, one seminary and two, there's two seminaries, both in Dubuque and they're not United Methodist. So, you know, we send our people to Kansas City and Kansas City, well, we send our people all over, but the closest but that, one is Kansas City. That doesn't mean that God isn't calling people because um, right. I, teach, I teach at licensing school, so does Alexis and the Iowa licensing school, you know, we have we have so many people come through that are ready to be second career folks are ready to do the licensed mm-hmm. local pastor route. And it's, it's just a different way. So it's a different way of being clergy. It's a different way of being authority. It's a different um, time and age and place and space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God, God's still working. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, and so the, you were talking about how the United Methodist church doesn't have a good understanding of pastor. There's a, um, the global board of discipleship or higher ed, one of those, um, is working on a theology of pastoral ministry. And they were having, they were conducting these meetings with boards of ordained ministry. And I serve on the Iowa board of ordained ministry. And, um, they were talking about possibilities of what ministry may look like in the future. And one of the possibilities is having like, um, having itinerant pastors that are kind of like, we lead I, the itinerant pastors lead a hub and you're there for 15 years and you're kind of like a mini district superintendent and then um, having licensed local pastors and certified lay ministers that serve the smaller local churches in the area. And you all just kind of rotate around in this mishmash of, of churches. It's, it's some sort of hybrid off the British Methodists, but they're um, trying to, trying to develop theology that would support moving to this new model because mm-hmm you know, the person who presented it had a problem with practical theology. And I was like, oh, I love practical theology. Um, so it was, it was an interesting conversation, but I think that's all coming down the pipe. Uh, yeah, know. I think so. And I think it's, it's helpful for anyone listening or even ourselves to remember, like, 
it's really painful sometimes to be who you are in ministry, but it absolutely is needed. And actually God didn't ask you to be anyone else. And that um, the accolades may not come now. And that doesn't mean like, I still think you should hear critique, right? I think it's okay to say, wait, is that me? And that's why we actually have to have um, soul friends who can say, no, that is true. So there were people I could go to and say, do I dress inappropriately? And there were the people who were like, nope. Um, because they would be the people that would be the first to say, yep, <laughs> if that was the case, right? And so I think we have to have these, these soul friends because um, I think we should be able to hear critique, but I also think we should be able to say, um, maybe they aren't ready for me yet, you know? Um, and I think that's like the lesson for me has been the places have been most painful for me have been um, places that it just wasn't yet that people were um, ready for what I wanted to bring to the table. Like even, you know, doing a podcast actually got me into trouble at first, not from ideas. He's, he's great. And, and the person was just concerned that I was going to be honest on the radio. Um, and my response was like, yeah, I am. I'm going to be honest. And, and, um, and what's interesting is our, our group of folks who have um, come into leadership, some of them uh, joined our church because they had heard a podcast that I was on and were like, I just needed honesty. Um, and so I think, you know, how people feel about you being a clergywoman, the truth is it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's how do you feel about you being a clergywoman and, and you are not supposed to be everyone's brand of great, right? You are specifically created by God to be a certain thing. You know, my, my guy friends are like, sometimes I just want to apologize for being a dude. I'm like, no, you are who you are. And that's awesome for those people. And that's what you were created to be. Like the beauty is, is when we don't put a hierarchy on it. Um, and some people are going to be able to hear the message of God differently from you than they're going to hear it from me. And so what if we just said like, oh man, it's so great that God uses all these different voices. And we're not very good at that. So we're coming up on an hour. Woo. They didn't really give me an end time, but we should probably wrap it up on an hour. Um, are there any like burning thoughts that you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Well, I would just like for our listeners, you might've noticed that Sarah wrapped it back around to being a female and also clergy, which I love. We had digression. And I think that this is a really genuine experience of being a clergy person, that our entire role is not identified by our gender. Our entire ministry is not identified by which body parts we have or how we identify. And like, and we're, we can't even talk for a whole hour about it because we're excited about other things in ministry. And I kind of love that. Um, I love that we were able to um, continue to go where we needed to go um, in our conversation. And uh, Sarah, I did want to thank you for bringing it back around so that we stayed on target. <laughs> I yeah, think, I just wanted to like notice this. Yeah. I think for me, I think the thing that I'm always hoping is for um, whenever I speak in whatever setting, I always think it's important for people to um, be excited about the uniqueness of who they are. Um, and, and yeah, and hear it as like, this is your story. This is who you are meant to be. And you're not going to be able, you know, the love your neighbor as yourself. It was one of my staff members a couple of years who pointed out, um, you have to love yourself first to be able to, like often we're real, real good at like loving who we think our neighbors are, but we're, we really are terrible at loving ourselves. And sometimes that's the acceptance piece that like, you're right. I was born a woman who looks a certain way, who like has affinity for clothes and hair and, you know, piercings, whatever. Um, but 
I also think there's just this profound gift in that. And so if you're listening and you're wondering like, is who I am okay? Um, well, first, are you damaging other people? Because that's a different story. But if who you are is okay, and the truth is, yeah, absolutely. And it was created by God. And so now what? Um, and I think maybe we don't know what a pastor looks like because we haven't seen you do it yet. Yep. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your time and for the No Bearded Theologians over here. I'm Alexis Johnson. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the conversations that we've had today on the Bearded Theologians Beardcast, and we'd encourage you to continue those conversations online at beardedtheologians.com or on our Facebook page. We also hope that you pick up a couple of coffee mugs to uh, satisfy your coffee mug collection. Have a good day.